morning, everyone. Our key scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 23. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn over there. Uh, I'll be reading it here for us this morning. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem and he's reflecting on all the things that have gone on and all the things that are going to happen. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just last week, we started uh, the story where we're going through the entire story that the Bible tells, the story that it tells of God. And this morning, before we get into the next section, there is something that we need to focus on. That something is the broken-hearted God. I don't know if any of you out there have been dumped before. I don't handle rejection particularly well. No one likes that feeling of someone saying, no, I don't want you. But of all the times that I was dumped, and let's not get into how many times I was dumped, I never got back together with any of my girlfriends. I would like to say that it was because I had a ton of self-respect and pride so that if any of them came back, I would simply say, you had your chance. Now you must live with the consequences of your decision. (laughs) Only once, actually, did I have the chance to get back together with a girlfriend, but she uh, chose a guy named Izzy instead. True story. (laughs) The truth is about me, that for a long time in my life, I was an easy target. The word that we might use to describe me would be the word doormat. I always fell in love first. I was always overly romantic. I loved the grand gestures. I was sentimental. I gave everything I had to my relationships. But no matter how hard I tried to prove that I was worthy of this other person's affections, They always ended. And finally, one day, I had had enough. And and here's the background to this story. A girl that I had asked out that I liked, I was in college at the time. A girl that I had asked out, um, we kind of went out, we kind of didn't. It turns out that she wasn't all that interested in me. She was actually interested in my apartment mate. I know. He's hideous, by the way. My apartment mate, and, and so this came out that uh, she wasn't actually interested in me. She was interested in my apartment mate, and I, I, my friend said, you know, I kind of like her. And I said, well, that's fine. You know, we, we really, like, we just, like, went to lunch or something. I don't even remember what it was. But can you just hold off a week? <laughs> like, just give me, just give me a little bit of time. The very next day... <laughs> She was at our apartment, and they were hanging out together. Now, here's the funny thing. I didn't even like this girl that much. (laughs) And I sort of knew this at the time. 
But knowing that she was there with him got under my skin. And finally, I just couldn't take it anymore. I left our apartment like at midnight. I grabbed my basketball. I went down uh, at Pepperdine next to the track. There's a basketball court, a half-court basketball court. And I played basketball by myself for hours, just trying to work out the anger and the stress that I felt. And my roommate had the nerve to come find me and yell at me, which was not the right thing to do. So we're yelling at each other in the middle of the night on this basketball court. We worked everything out, um, but that was the start of a downward spiral for me. By the time that, by the end of that semester, I was very much depressed. And at the start of the next semester, I was in counseling for the first time in my life. Now that counselor, and I think I've told you this before, so just nod and smile. That counselor suggested that a way for me to feel better about myself and all these things that had happened was that I get in touch with this girlfriend that I had had a few years before. And I talked to her about why she broke up with me. And so out of the blue, I call this girl and I say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm crazy now, um, but can you explain to me why we broke up so that I can have some sense of closure and idea of what's going on here? And you know what she said? Oh, I didn't think we were breaking up. This from a woman who sent me a breakup note that arrived in my school mailbox on Valentine's Day. On Valentine's Day! <laughs> Needless to say, that little measure didn't help me with my feelings of rejection and missed opportunities. She had moved on, of course, and I didn't get in touch with her again. So what is the point? My point is this. I have felt the sting of rejection, a relationship that I cared about falling apart, and all of those experiences became a burden that I carried around with me all the time. And though no one else knew it, it became sort of this thing for me that I would put myself out there, that I would try my hardest, and that it would never work. That someone would always decide that they didn't like me, or I was not enough, or they wanted something else. Those feelings are awful. Those feelings are awful, and... It wasn't until I met the most beautiful woman in the world who saved me from all of that. But what she gave me was a redefining experience where she allowed me to overcome all those things that I had been carrying around with me. And she loved me for who I was and loves me for who I am. Here's what we learned last week. God is above all, before all, over all things. He lovingly created the world. He created man to be in relationship with him. But man chose to rebel against God. The one thing that God asked man not to do, man chose to do. There is one who is pulling man away from God, preying on humanity's instincts to be like God. And though God must judge, he left the door open for redemption, but he deeply desires that this relationship will be restored. I am made in the image of God. And my heart was broken by relationships that in the end don't matter a whole lot. 
multiple times. I felt every rejection, every failure. I wondered what I could have done differently. I had to deal with the realization that whoever I wanted simply did not want me, but wanted something else. And how can we think that God has not felt those same things? When we are made in His image, when we seek after the heart of God, God's heart is broken. And it has been from the moment we chose something other than Him. God has watched us choose other things time and again. He has watched us walk into the room next door with our new mate while He sits there and hears us. He has watched us build statues of animals He has watched us choose anything but Him. God is brokenhearted. And on top of that, He sees everything that does not work. He sees all of the failure. He sees all of the reasons. He sees how He should be the answer. And for some reason, we keep choosing something else. Now, I can tell you that the good news is that God never gives up. But I want us to take a moment to reflect on the fact that our God has suffered for a long time with us. He has suffered for a long time with us. God has chosen to put up with a lot from His creation over generation and generations to come. Even though we keep making the same mistakes over and over again, and we celebrate church that God loves us, but we have to understand His heart is hurting at the same time. And His great desire is for us to choose Him to say, God, you are enough for me. Isn't that funny? The God who can do anything just wants us to say that He is enough. We're going to take a quiet moment this morning to consider the brokenhearted God. And we're going to sing a new song one that you've never sung or maybe even heard before. But the words of the song help us to come into this moment because the song is called More Than I Deserve. God has given us more than we deserve. And this morning we don't wallow in our faults and our failures, but we recognize that our God who loves us, loves us from a broken heart. Uh, So, uh, today we are in week two of the story, and just for those of you who maybe were not here uh, last week or the week before, uh, the story is taking us through the Bible in roughly how many weeks? 40. As long as it takes, baby. As long as it takes. Uh, Roughly 31 weeks, we're going to be going through uh, the story of the Bible. And what the story does is it encourages us to look at the Bible as one big overarching story, um, to recognize the themes of the story and to see ourselves in the story. So I, I mentioned this last week. I'll mention it to you again today. There is a book that you can read that goes along with this. It's called The Story. 
And what it is, uh, just so you know, is it has taken uh, the Bible and it's broken it up into 31 chapters. And it takes these big stories and kind of breaks them down and, sh- and just pulls out some of the key passages. So if you want to be up to date on what we're going to do each week, I would recommend you pick one of these up. You can order it from Amazon. If you need any help, uh, David Tedla can help you with that because he ordered his in-house last week and he's got it today with him. So uh, if you if you are interested in these, you can come talk to me. You can order it from Amazon. Um, we don't have any in stock here for you to get. So uh, if if you do need help with that, you can let me know. <clears throat> but so one thing I want to a couple things I want to repeat from last week. In order to read the Bible as story, it requires us to approach Scripture in a slightly different way than we are accustomed to. And it's for this reason. When we typically approach Scripture, uh, we are coming at it as uh, the Bible is a guide, and I need to figure out what, am I, what I am supposed to do in whatever situation it is. Uh, it's a guide for life. And this, of course, is something that is true about Scripture. We find all kinds of things to help us and guide us and to give us wisdom for different situations and how we live like Jesus. But the Bible is not only an instruction manual, and I think we are a little bit guilty of approaching it just as such. It is filled with stories, wonderful stories, amazing stories, big stories. And all of these stories come together to form one huge, consistent story from the creation all the way to the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things by the Father. So, here are the rules again. We are going to approach the Bible from a slightly different angle. Number one, the Bible is a story with characters. There are people that do things, go places, accomplish different things. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, things are going to happen in each section that are going to tell us about these characters and that are going to further what the story is about. And our task as we go through is to recognize what is going on in the story, how it is moving the big story forward, and most importantly, what the story tells us about God and the world. Now, What did we learn last week from Genesis chapters 1 through 9? We learned that there are three main characters. Those main characters are who? God, God, right? Mankind and the devil, the tempter, the evil one, whatever you want to call this force that is uh, trying to pull us away from God. And and we said this a little bit earlier, but here's the storyline again that we saw last week. Number one, God is... Above all, before all, over all things. He existed before anything else was. We learn that God lovingly created the world. He made it the way it is on purpose and he believed that it was good. We know that God created man to be in special relationship with him. Uh, Man was created in the image of God and had a relationship and responsibility that nothing else in creation had. We then saw that man chose to rebel against God, chose to disobey God. And this was an action that God could not overlook. It changed the dynamics of the relationship between these characters forever. We saw that there is one, the evil one, the tempter, Satan, who is pulling man away from God, who is trying to influence us to make other choices than the ones that God wants us to make. We saw that God 
as I said earlier, can't just ignore what happened. That God has to judge the situation. But even though he must judge, he leaves the door open for redemption. He kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, but he does not cut off relationship with them. And even when God is at his lowest moment in those early chapters, where he is grieved that he has created mankind, and he decides that he needs to wipe the earth of all of the evil that is there, he still holds on to one family with the hope that this one family will be his. That if he starts over with these people who find grace in his eyes, Noah and his family, that things will be better. And he deeply desires for his relationship with humanity to be restored. And though he is hurt and though he is grieved, he works to this end. We have to speed? Yes. Good. The question that we have, and this is difficult for us, so... We know how the story goes. We know all kinds of obscure stories from the Bible. We know what happens when and where. But if you're thinking about this again as a narrative, there is an obvious question that comes next, which is, what is the next step? God starts over with Noah. He gets on the earth. And then just in a lightning round summary, what happens as the earth becomes repopulated? People move away from God again. Okay, it happens again. People move away from God. So that by the time you get to Genesis chapter 12, the fact of the matter is that there's really not anyone on earth who belongs to God. For the second time. Right? For the second time this has happened where God looks at the earth and he tried to start over and it broke his heart and he made these covenant and these promises but he gets to this point and everyone has moved away from him again. Now, what is God going to do about this? What is he going to do about, what is his answer to this problem? Because we have to recognize that it's a serious problem, right? I mean, we're not that many, we're not that far into the Bible. And this has happened on a global scale twice. I want relationship with you and they move away. I want relationship with you and they move away. So what can we deduce is going to continue happening with mankind? That it's not, it's not going to be fixed anytime soon. And so what does God do? He's not going to start over again like he said before. And so his answer to this problem is an interesting one. God decides he is going to build a nation. This is what he's going to do. He is going to build a nation. Now, I don't know about you, but the first question that comes to my mind is, well, that's kind of weird. Why would God decide to build a nation? Like, that seems like an interesting choice. Well, what is his motivation in doing so? Why, why would he make this choice? Now, on the surface, on the surface, this question seems to have an obvious answer, right? There's all these people. He's not going to destroy the world again. So he needs to pull his own people out of the pool that he has and start over. That's why he's going to start a nation. But we cannot overlook the emotional baggage that has to come with this decision. 
for the main character of the story, God. Sorry if I'm going to beat this horse to death. But God created man to be in relationship with him, and mankind is forever rebelling, forever changing that relationship. It can never be as God wanted it to be. Humanity moves so far away from God that he actually wished he had never created us. He gave grace to the one family, as we said. And then he finds that humanity continues to move away from him. And so what, where is God at this point? What does he think? What is his mindset? What does he feel? He wants his own people. That's clear. He's, he's made this clear throughout the story. But God has been unsuccessful in holding on to us. Or rather, humanity has been unsuccessful in sticking with God. So he has to be hurt and he has to be frustrated. And this decision for him to start over again, this is no small decision on the part of God. This is the new equivalent to the flood where God wiped everyone else out. Fine. You don't want me. I will start over again with these people. So he will create a nation, a nation of people that will be his. He will have relationship with them. They will follow him. He will be their God and they will be his people. But what does God know? What does he know? He knows that he cannot trust us. Because we have proved ourselves to be untrustworthy. He has to see that there are limitations at play here, but he still wants humanity to be his. He still wants them to belong to him. But as has been true from the beginning, he is willing to give in return. Remember, creation is an act of giving, of creating, of, of giving life, of providing, of showing what a good God that he is. So God somehow still has this desire to give and maintain and supply and sustain. And he has to see at this point that by starting over again, he is going to have to be the one to be steadfast. Because he knows we won't be, right? He knows we won't be. So as readers of the story, we recognize that whatever God is going to do from this point, it's going to be more complicated than what we've seen before. And it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a struggle. Why is it going to be a struggle? Because it's all been a struggle to this point. And we can't expect it to be any different, right? If it were so simple, then we wouldn't be here at this point in the story. And God knows this. That whatever he's going to do next is not going to be easy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which speaks to us and shows us this story. God, as we look at a story that a lot of us in this room know so well, may we see it with fresh eyes here today. 
May we recognize what is going on, why it's happening, what you are looking for, and God, again, may we see ourselves in this story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, how does this work? It all starts with one very important moment. Okay? God chooses, and then he calls. You know, what's, what's interesting, uh, we don't know how long it took God to choose. We don't know how far of a process this went. We don't know how long it took, but this is what we have. Again, um, just a, a brief reminder, because we are jumping around a little bit, I don't have specific scripture references for you. What I can tell you is we are starting in Genesis chapter 12. My encouragement is don't try to flip around and find everything. It's going to be on the screen here for you. And um, if you want to read in more detail, you can pick up the story or you can open your Bible and read things in greater length. Okay? Is that fair? Is that a fair assessment? Okay. So here's what we have starting in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. <clears throat> okay, it starts out with a call. Um, and, but really, this call is sort of a call slash promise. I want you to go, and I want you to go because I am going to make you into a great nation. Okay, so first question. Number one, what is God asking for? What is God asking for? The call is for Abram and Sarai to be gods and gods alone. That is the primary element that we see here in this call. Now, we take this idea for granted, but in the time that Abram lived, people did not have one God. They had lots of gods. And in the ancient Near East, it was a place where there were gods for every time, place, subject, need. And you would go to that specific god for that specific need. So this god showing up to Abram and saying, I am the god, and I want you to follow me, is a pretty big deal. And it is not only difficult because of what he is asking Abram to do, but also because of the entire concept of what he is asking for Abram. Which tells us something else. This is how far the world has moved away from the God. It is a different concept for there to be one. Does that tell you how weird that is? So this is what the call is. The call is for them to be gods, the one gods, and gods alone. The call 
also is for Abram and Sarai to follow God wherever he might take them. He literally asked them to get up, leave, and go. Just go. He will tell them where to go, but they have to take the first step and follow him. But he does not give them a whole lot of information, according to what we have here in Genesis chapter 12. He doesn't tell them exactly where they are going. He doesn't tell them how they are going to get there. He doesn't tell them how he is going to do what he said he is going to do, which is what? Make them into a nation. He just says, I want to do this, so go. We marvel at Abraham's or Abram's response to this call, because what does he do? He gets up and he leaves. And we spend so much time focusing on that. But this is where the narrative view helps us see something new. Why does God do this in this way? Why does God not give Abram more information? Why does he not give him a map and directions and a PowerPoint presentation that shows him how wonderful Canaan is and all these different things? Where is the travel brochure? Why does he do it in this way? Because make no mistake, God does it this way on purpose. God has been burned multiple times before. And what is the one thing he needs at this moment more than anything else? Someone who will choose him. Someone who will say, yes, you be God, I will go. He needs someone that is actually going to treat him like God. So this is the first challenge that is laid out there. It's not, will you get up and go, which is what we always focus on. It's, will you make me God, or will you not? The call comes with a promise. If Abram and Sarai follow God, they will become a great nation. God later says that their descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as countless as the sand on the seashore. If they choose to follow God, God will give them everything that they need and he will raise them up. Now, there's something else we need to recognize about what's going on here. And that is this small little chestnut. This whole thing makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all. Charles and Sirid, would you stand up for a second? You know how old Charles is? 75. 75. God's going to start a nation. You can sit down. Yes, we, thank you. I told Charles all he had to do was stand. Just for a second. Just for a second. This is who God chooses to start a nation. 75-year-old people, which, don't get me wrong, you look great. But 75-year-old people who have no children. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And if we were planning this out or writing this story, we would not choose Charles in Secret to start a nation. We wouldn't. We would choose Missy and Marshall. Right? 
For obvious reasons. They're not 75. That's the first and most obvious reason. He's not the guy we would choose, but God does. Why? Is it because Abram will say yes? I mean, God has to know at this point that there's no guarantees, right? He knows that there's no guarantees. But this tells us something important about the story, and that's this. God, at this point, shows something that will happen throughout the story. God often chooses to accomplish his purposes in the most difficult way possible. Although we may scratch our heads and wonder why God chooses to work in this way, the reason soon becomes clear. God is the one who is in charge. It's his story. He is the one that is making the moves. He is the one that is making things happen. And he will see things through even if it makes no sense to you or me. And so God calls these people out. But there are two very important concepts that are developed in this story. We've seen a portion of them before, but they become crucial to this whole thing. And that first concept, think about this, the introduction of faith. Okay? Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. Noah, we see Noah act on faith. But this is the first time we see this idea of faith become something almost tangible. Will you believe that I am God? And by believing in that, will you then act in a certain way? Faith is introduced. Will he believe that God will do what he says he will do? Will Abram put his own will aside and follow the will of God? Will he step out into the unknown because God told him to? Do you know what that is? That is faith. But the second thing that is introduced is God is a promise maker. Will he be a promise keeper? Can God be trusted to do what he says he will do? Will he follow through? And we want to scream to the heavens, yes, because we know it's true. However, the story tells us about that fulfillment, and it is fulfillment in the hardest way possible. It is not easy there are not six easy steps that they go through to get to this point. But that's the question that lays on either side. For our two main characters, God has made a promise. How will he keep it? Will he keep it? God has called these people out. Will they choose him? And will they follow him? And miraculously, they do. But remember what I said earlier. It's a struggle. And they get out and things are going okay and they're moving along, except there's one huge problem. Huge. The problem is Sarah is not getting pregnant. If you are going to become a great nation, what is the one thing you must have? Children. You must have children. And they're out there and they're following and God is leading them. There's a couple hiccups along the way. Abram loses his courage a couple of times. But God pulls them from this. But this core promise that you will become a nation, they're struggling with this because they don't see it happening. And so, we see struggle rise to the surface. Abram believed that the promised child would come from his own body, but as far as he and Sarai knew, 
It didn't have to come from her. God didn't say that specifically the baby will come from Sarai when he spoke to Abram in the first place. And so they did something which was a very common move at the time. Sarai had a servant named Hagar who belonged to her. And so they decide this is taking too long. And Sarai offers Hagar to Abram. Because any baby that Hagar has will technically, legally, I guess you could say at that time, be the child of Abram and Sarai. So, this is the solution to the problem. We're going to take care of this. We're going to have a baby. They were getting older by the second. I, I kind of understand it, right? I mean, they can almost watch themselves aging. And God had promised this to them, but there was still no baby. And so we see them do what humanity does over and over again. They are going to help God. They're going to help him. And so they have this whole plan to have this baby. And you might be surprised to learn this, but the plan actually doesn't go so well. I know, it's crazy. It doesn't go so well. Hagar had a baby, and in fact she had a son, which is exactly what she wanted, except that Sarah got really jealous about it. Why? Because of course she would. She couldn't have a baby. And now this woman knocks one out. How is she supposed to feel? Maybe she thought it wouldn't work. Maybe she thought, oh, I'll go along with this for now. We see a tendency pop up and not for the first time, and that is this. God makes a promise, but humanity is not so good at letting God fulfill this promise when he sees fit or how he sees fit because we want to help. But by helping, we remove our faith from God and we take control of whatever's going on. When we try to help God in this way, it doesn't work out. And all it created in the life of Abraham and Sarah was drama. That's all it did was create problems. And so, God has to speak back into this situation. And what he chooses to do is he chooses to remind them and to even fine-tune a little bit what it is that he wants to do and how he's going to do it. So listen to this. When Abram was 99 years old, so it's been nearly 25 years since they left, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. 
Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, so what does God tell Abram? And it's something, for better or for worse, that Abram needs to hear. He says to him, I will fulfill this promise. You don't have to do it. I will fulfill this promise. You will have descendants. You will have land. You will be a nation. You will be mine and I will be yours. It's a renewal of sorts. It's a, it's a giver of confidence to Abram and Sarai that this can happen. And it comes at a good time because Abram is, also, is almost 100 years old. So if things are going to happen, it needs to start happening. It's a rededication of sorts, but it's worth noting that in order for this to progress, God does something that is crucial that we may not pay as much attention to, and that is this. God changes Abram's identity. He gives him a new name. He will no longer be Abram, but he will be who? Which means what? If you need to look back at it again, this is what he says. Your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Has he? Well, according to Abram and Sarai, not yet. And yet God looks at the situation and he changes his name to I have made you a father of many nations. This leads us to two important points in the process of God establishing a people that will be his. And the first one is the people of God, their identity has to be established by God. It can't be this exercise in them deciding who they're going to be and then God slowly directing them back. They have to be formed and made by him. They need to be named by him. But more than that, within that identity has to be this core belief that God has already fulfilled. Even if you don't see how it has happened or how it's going to happen or if it has happened. When God makes a promise, it is already done. He doesn't have any children yet, and yet God calls him, I have made you a nation. The end is unclear, but he is calling for Abram to have so much faith in God that even though it hasn't happened yet, Abram will act as if it already has. We're going to be a nation. Where are your children? Don't know. But we're going to be. Why? Because God promised it. And it's already happened. How? Don't know. Think about that for a second. God wants him to have so much confidence in him that this is how Abram will look at the world. But understand something. This is what it means to be a child of the promise keeper. Not just the promise maker. A child of the promise keeper when he makes a promise, it is fulfilled whether you see how it's going to happen or not. And it does happen. 
Sarah got pregnant and Isaac was born. And he was indeed a miracle baby. But this weird, twisty journey toward God having his own people, while it's finally underway, has one more step, which is one of the most, I don't know, dramatic passages in the Bible, perhaps. It's the test. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, so he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. <clears throat> now, it's easy to get caught up in two questions when we read this story. How could God and how could Abraham? We take this story out of the big story and it becomes this story of Drama and testing and faith and all of these different things, but underneath the surface there's something that is very uncomfortable for us about it. God asks him to do something awful, and Abraham agrees to do that something awful. So, we're going to look at it as part of the narrative. So the question that we have to ask is, what is the function of this story? Because it is crucially important to everything that's going on. I mean, we have, we have dialogue. We have detail. And it is not difficult for us as readers to imagine what this story is like. 
What did he say to Sarah? What did Isaac say while his dad was tying him up? There are so many questions that we have from this story. But what is the function of it? And it's, it's to show something to God. We don't read it from God's point of view. But we need to understand this. This story is about what God needs. Not about what Abraham and Sarah need. Not about what we need. It is about what God needs. And God needs this. He needs Abraham to trust Him completely. All the way, 100%. Now why does God feel this need so acutely? Are you kidding me? Look at everything that's happened. Of course He has this need. Of course He wants to know that Abraham is with Him. And so He puts Abraham into this unimaginable situation And Abraham somehow decides that he can go and do this. Now the book of Hebrews later tells us that Abraham reasoned that God could raise someone from the dead. Which is kind of a, it's an interesting subtext to that. But in terms of story, Abraham as a representation of humanity, turns a crucial corner. And that corner is this. He does not understand how this is going to accomplish making him a nation. How is killing your one descendant going to give you a family? It's not. And yet, he goes and does it. And this church is exactly what God was looking for. Because at this moment, when Abraham raises the knife over his, se- over his head, what does God know without a doubt about Abraham? He trusts God. He trusts God. Not has faith in God, not believes in God. He trusts Him. That God is going to do what's right even if he has no clue how this is going to work out. Even if it seems like it's the wrong thing to do. He is going to follow God's direction. And God is finally presented with someone who is capable of choosing God over anything. Over anything. He will choose God. As limited as he may be, Abraham chose to trust God in overwhelmingly bad circumstances and that meant something to the broken-hearted God who just wanted people to be his. And here it was, on this lonely mountain, a man alone with his son, willing to give everything to the God who made the promise and to the God who he still believed would fulfill it. Even if God had to raise Isaac from the dead, he would do it. I wish I could say it got easier from here, but it doesn't. 
Because as Abraham's family grows, it doesn't happen like you think it would. This whole becoming a nation thing. I mean, Isaac gets married and has two sons, which is a good thing, right? Yeah, except only one of them gets to carry the promise, and the other one doesn't. And the one who carries the promise is not the greatest guy. He's not the greatest guy. He's dishonest. He tricked his brother out of what his brother deserved. He's just not... He's not what you would look for. And yet, there's this interesting part, and we're almost done here. When Jacob is coming back to see Esau... And he, he goes off by himself. We, we see this story. He arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob and his sons do become the nation of Israel. But we see something really fascinating here. Jacob struggled with God. He was flawed, very much so. And he lived a difficult life because of it. But he came back. And on the cusp of him coming back to be restored to his family... What happens? He struggles with God. He struggles with God. But he won't give up. And the angel injures him. And he won't give up. And the angel finally asks him, what is it that you want? Because it's starting to become daytime. And he says he wants a blessing. And then what does the angel do, church? Changes his name. Changes his name. From Jacob to Israel. For you have struggled with God and man and have prevailed. God rewards us when we continue to struggle to hold on to him. It is a struggle. All the stuff that Abraham had to do was not easy. And we see this. We are rewarded not because we have problems. He doesn't reward us because we are flawed. But knowing that we are flawed, he responds lovingly, overwhelmingly, when we refuse to let go. Oh man, I messed this up, but God, give me a blessing. Oh, I've been such an awful person. God, 
Help me out of this. And the struggle is not over. The story has just begun. But there are four things I want you to remember from today. Number one, God is the promise maker and the keeper of promises. He is. Number two, faithfulness on our part means that we need to have so much confidence in God that we act as if what God has promised is already done. Even though we may not know how. Number three, from the time that we took a bite of the fruit, struggle became a part of our story. And sometimes it has been our downfall. But at other times, as we struggle to hold on to our God, God blesses us and changes our name. And changes who we are. Which takes us to our last point. In order to truly belong to God, we have to allow him to change who we are. He has to change our names from someone who is too old to the father of a nation. From someone who struggles to one who prevails. And that is our story. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story and for what it tells us. God, we see so many things happen. But we see, God, that you are both the maker and keeper of promises. We see, God, that you are looking for people who will choose you, will follow you, will give their lives for you. And God, we see that as we struggle with doing that, you reward those who hold on to you and refuse to let go. It is a struggle. But God, we are thankful that you are on our side. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you have a need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who wants to bless you, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.